to episode 108 of the Throwdown Thursday podcast. My name is Passy the Angry Nerd. And uh, there's some crunchy sounds in the background. Just to get you ready. That's creepiness. It's like the sounds of flesh being sucked from bone and bone being crunched down from marrow. Because that's the type of show we got for you today. Joining us, as always, my co-host in life... And my co-host in podcasting, my better half, or best half, although I think when you're talking halves, better and best would be the same, ladies and gentlemen, Ashes Von Nightmare. So am I now no longer the mistress of Merlot, or, you know, the real housewife of Transylvania, Pennsylvania. or the Michael Phelps of wine, I'm just your wife? Well, you are all of those things, but I'm trying to switch it up, change things yeah, up don't. a little bit. Yeah, don't. I'm going to change everything. Yeah, no. No, that that was not discussed. What? And as co-owner of this podcast, I don't like it. The desperate for wine housewife. <laughs> I just don't like it. The desperate for wine housewife. And as as your wife, we all know that the only opinion that really matters is mine. Oh, yeah. Yes. So here we are. Uh, I know last week we were talking about altered reality, but uh, this week we're back in real life, and we are here with the hardest working man in podcasting, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Johnny Wolfenstein. Is this reality, or is this just fantasy? Oh, <laughs> A little of both. A little and A, a little B. Our guest today needs no introduction. So today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about... Uh, oh, you're trying to be oh, funny. Oh, that's funny. No, of course, we are uh. being joined by the host of the In the Mountains of Cinema Madness podcast, our good friend, uh, Mr. Jeremy McFarlane, who is uh, crunching away on uh, the bones of his enemies right now. <laughs> How are you guys doing? <laughs> doing all right. How are you? Glad you're able Fantastic. to join us. Yes, thank you for asking me, guys. I appreciate it. Oh yeah, you know we uh, we know you're a big fan of uh, both the thing and McCready as well as uh, uh, Curtis Russell. So, I mean, it's only natural that we would have you uh, come on the show with us. Hey, it shares the same birthday with my uh, my son. Oh, oh really? Or not? Yeah. Did you plan cool. it that way? I wish I would have. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, 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 no! You can't give birth yet. You have to wait. 20 more minutes. Hold 20 it. more minutes. Come on. Hold, hold it. it. Hold it. <laughs> he looked her, at it. Her mom, her mom definitely did. Actually was like that. She, she was like, I wish you, would, you could hold on just until midnight. So you, they could have, they could share the same birthdays together. But oh. it didn't work out that way. So, oh, well. close enough though. You got, you got Kurt Russell instead. Yeah. I'm, I'm very happy with Kurt Russell. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure, uh, I'm sure the, the, the youngin is as well. Oh yeah, yeah. He likes Kurt so, Russell quite a bit. Good. I mean, you know, I can understand why. Uh, yeah. So, obviously, we're going to be talking about you know the film, and we're going to be talking about the book because uh, I know you have some very interesting thoughts on uh, how McCready is portrayed in the novel. Who goes there? Uh, yeah. As, as do I. But. Uh, what I'd like to do first, because uh, Ashes, you and I were talking about this earlier, and uh, so Jeremy, we'll give you a minute to kind of, uh, you know, think about this as we talk about it, because uh, sure. we did not uh, divulge this information to you, so you're getting this like fresh. Uh, what we wanted to talk about is 
uh, as many people know, with the uh, with the 1982 version, there were a lot of unanswered questions. And in 2011, there was an attempt to answer some of those questions with a prequel film. And one of the biggest issues folks had with it was the special effects, even though they were, you know, coming out 30 years later, mm-hmm. were far inferior to that of the 1982 John Carpenter film. And a lot of folks said that it was because of the uh, over, over-reliance on CGI. No. And one of the biggest issues that uh, I have with some of uh, one of my favorite film series, Star Wars, was the 1997 and then what was it, 2002 re-releases of the quote-unquote special editions of the... Was it uh, 2002? It might have been later than... might have been 2007? The special editions? Yeah, I remember them later, earlier, uh, yeah, 90s. No, no, those came before the prequels. Well, I know there was like 97, but then I think they did it again to put like Hayden Christensen into the... Oh, you're talking about those. Okay, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, so yikes, like they, yikes, they yikes. did it twice. Yep. Oh, and then, oh, Hayden Christensen's in Return of the Jedi. I forgot to replace yeah. the original so like, one. Okay, yeah. They did like the 20th anniversary, and then they did like another version after the prequels came out. Oh. So, yeah, you're right about that. Okay. So the question that uh, we're talking about today to kind of start things off is, aside from the thing, what's a film that you think People would want to try to update the uh, the uh, effects, but if that were to happen, it would just absolutely ruin the film experience. And Ashes, I know you had a, a very specific film in mind when we talked about this earlier. Yeah, so when we were talking about this earlier, uh, I think everyone knows that both Patsy and myself are huge fans of practical effects. I view it as an art... I think that it takes a lot of talent to accomplish what is accomplished. And um, so so one of the things I mentioned uh, when we were talking about this, I asked Patrick, do puppets count? Absolutely puppets count. Because my initial thought was the Jim Henson creature shop. Yeah. And the movie Labyrinth. Yeah, and I completely agreed with you because there are certain scenes that if you were to try to redo these with CGI, like even if, you know, and I, the reason I brought up the star Wars thing is because, you know, certain films you're like, well, you could never replace David Bowie as, as you know, the goblin King. So there's no way I could even consider this, but like, say someone wanted to put out a special edition, kind of like a remastered. Yeah. Like say version Jim, of the Jim the Henson legacy, or... you know, squad decided they wanted to put out a a remastering of this film you know i don't think they could because you you brought up a very specific scene well it's the scene with uh she's falling down the hole and there's all of the hands that are there and those are real hands. Like, those are people who are painted and their hands are forming the faces and dropping her and catching her and moving her al- along. And I don't think that it would have had that same effect, that scary, realistic effect that it had because it was real. There were real people and you could kind of put yourself in Sarah's shoes 
and imagine yourself in that same type of peril and being so terrified as to what are these hands going to do? Like, are they going to help me? Are they going to hinder me? Are they going to continue to, you know, form themselves into these horrific faces and talk at me? And I don't think that any type of CGI would have just completely ruined the actually I, I feel like as a whole, any type of CGI in general would have mo- ruined the entire movie, the entire feel of it. Yeah, and I I agree with that because you there know the are, scene with the orb when you know yeah, when he's waving the scenes the, when the, the with the orb, orb around the little the um, thing you know if they scene. were try, going to try to make it look more I don't know ethereal and showy. Or, yeah like it would take away from just how real everything felt and if they were to try to you know snazz up some of the puppets with cgi i don't think it would have Especially that same effect the little dudes that throw their heads around and again i can't remember the name of it but uh you know to harken back to our show last week about comic-con um there was actually uh, a young lady walking around with one of these puppets and our good friend and friend of the show jenny Ismi was there Mm-hmm. And Jenny's like, oh, my God, these things fucking terrified me when I was a kid. I need to take a picture with it. The Wild Gang? Is that what they're called? I forget what their names are. The fo- Like the red fox-looking guys. guys. Yeah. I f- yeah, I forget what they're called. Boogie Down with the Wild Bunch or Boogie Down with the Wild Gang. I think that's what yeah. they're called. Or something. Yeah, something like that. <clears throat> I, for- I forget yeah. the exact names, but um, I just feel like that movie, the reason why certain scenes are so effective is because it's so real and even though you know <coughs> that they're using puppets and you know fireys fireys yeah fireys i thought that was it but i oh, okay but i wasn't they, they never say it though they do call themselves the fire gang fire gang okay yeah. but one of the things that you and i talked about and um jeremy after i make this point it'll be your turn to go and give us your your thoughts but uh one of the things that I, I mentioned was sometimes in films you think something is uh, a film is using CGI, but it's actually a practical effect. Uh, and the first scene that comes to my mind is Hell Jurassic Ranger. Park. Oh, Jurassic Park? Jurassic Park, uh, where Lex and Tim are in the Jeep and the T-Rex head comes crashing in oh, and smashes and the, the glass. glass. Now, that was done with a practical effect. However, the glass was not supposed to break. The head was not supposed to bust through the sunroof and break the glass. Mm -hmm. So you got a real legitimate reaction from these kids who are honestly terrified because here comes this giant animatronic puppet crashing down at them, and they are in legitimate real danger. That is not something you can get from CGI. You have to pretend like something is happening. And that's the type of visceral reaction you cannot get with a computer-generated image when you're just trying to act at something, like somebody holding a mark, like you know, uh, a tennis ball or something. It like, is a lot easier, Just and this is coming from my super amateur point of view. It's easier to act... At something to react to something versus pretending to act at something, react at something. You know, it's easier to, you know, not have to visualize something because there's a visual actually there. It just kind of it's an aid. It, it, I I think that movies that use practical effects 
um, the actors definitely benefit from that. And even, um, again, I, I hope I'm not stealing Jeremy's thunder here, but part of what made the movie Jaws so amazing is that they were using a practical effect that didn't work very well. So to get around that, they just kind of like <coughs> hid the shark from view for all but a couple of scenes. Well, it was the editor. The editor, she recommended to, to edit the shark out more because Spielberg wanted the shark in more, but she convinced him to not show the shark very often. So she edited out the shark as much as possible. So, right. It, but it still worked really well. Yeah, and that's, and that's not something... And that's probably the smartest decision that that movie made. Right, but... Yeah, I agree. If that was done with CGI, you never would have come across that specific uh, hindrance. You wouldn't be like, oh, well, the CGI doesn't work. You know, it's like the sure, CGI didn't sure. sink to the bottom of, you know, Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Like, that's the thing. But, I mean, that's the, that, but that's, I think that's the thing, too, though. Like, we're... I mean, all of us here on the show, uh, we grew up in a, a different time where, um, you know, it was better. I find we all find it better. Um, I think I can speak for all of us that it, we find it better to not have we don't have to see everything like we can use our imagination and, and be scared because of like a, a slow zoom in with a great score or or a great piece of dialogue talking about something you'll never see. Exactly. I mean that's that's fantastic. I don't need to see all this other stuff. I just I can imagine it, and it's terrifying. Well, and at the same so. time, we are also you know this is again something we were talking about on the, on the ride home from work today. You know, we were kind of spoiled where we have this huge like assortment of of artists. You know, Stan Winston and Rick Baker and Tom Savini and and Rob Botton. All of these guys who are just known for their practical effects. I mean, Rob Botton, who worked on the thing, which I'm sure we'll mention. You know, my favorite, my favorite special effects. He, he, got, he wanted me. He made me want to be a special effects artist when I was a kid. And so. you know, a lot of folks don't know that he designed the RoboCop suit. Like mm -hmm. that was his design. You know, um, you know, Rick Baker worked on one of my favorite projects of all time, which is. Uh, Thriller, the thriller video, like that was based on his work in American Werewolf in London. Rob Botton also did The Howling. Howling. He yeah. did his own werewolf. Yeah, so, so they you know. like they were at the same time they were putting out werewolf movies like Botton was and those are two of, you know, what are generally considered to be the greatest werewolf transformations mm -hmm. in cinema. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it's even with CGI like we've seen in say Underworld or, uh, American World comes American World from Paris. Paris, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Paris. Like <laughs> that was CGI, and it still doesn't hold a candle to what these guys did with real practical effects over hours and hours and hours of time. So, Jeremy, sure. obviously, the the question is now to you. Where's uh, where are your thoughts? What's uh, what's a a film or a film series that you would go with? Uh, that you don't think could ever be replaced with CGI? This is hard. Um, this is really hard. Uh, you know, I, I've been thinking about, I, I, while you guys were talking, I was going through my, you know, the filmography, I, all the DVDs and Blu-rays I got and stuff, just looking around, just trying to get pieces here and there. <clears throat> I came up with two. I mean, 
another one's a John Carpenter movie, but another mm-hmm. one's a different. It's another flick. Eighty um, One's uh, Dragon Slayer with oh. Peter McNichol. Okay, which is um, you know you have this massive animatronic dragon head, and you never really see it. You only see kind of a shadow of in the back. Well, you have this sort of uh, virgin being sacrificed to this dragon, and it is one of the scariest things I had ever seen as a kid. It's still pretty damn scary now, but all the stop motion and dragon puppetry in that movie and the subtlety of that movie and the dark, it's it's a very dark movie, but like you could never replace it. I think one of the things you could never replace is the animated lightning. Animated lightning is so cool. Yes, you never get that that feeling that 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 sort of feeling that that get that that watching animated lightning gives you is such a great feeling. It's like you're back home and you're a kid again. Um, but it's but you know that these guys over cells and cells of film they drew this stuff out. Yeah, it's give me animated some, and it's there. Give me some nice you know? animated lightning. Over a matte painting, you know, uh, the first thing that came to oh, mind was the end, so good. the end of, uh, like, the, the beginning of the third act of Ghostbusters. Sure. You know, yeah. like that. Or or Escape from New York, when the yep. camera comes up over the wall and you see James Cameron's beautiful matte painting of uh, New York, and it looks amazing. It's like... Blade yeah, Runner. Yeah, yeah, or Blade Runner, yeah. You get toy helicopters flying around in the background. They, look, they just look fantastic. So much artistry put into all that stuff i mean there's so many matte paintings in labyrinth too i mean they're, mm-hmm. they're incredible um i would also say like prince of darkness john carpenter's prince of darkness like it has such a great subtlety to it and these in very simple special effects like a mirror it looks like a mirror on the it's obviously on the ground but it's 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 set up front like vertical but you put the hands inside water and you get that real physical feel of like a person putting their hand through water and actually reacting to like whatever's in beyond that water, and there's like there's there's so many films, um, you know, I, I can't think of all of them, but but like you know what Carpenter does with like a green strobe light and a glo- sort of a cylinder globe underneath that church with all the crosses up everywhere, and it's just like this. It's basically you're supposed to think it's a it's a just tube full of this ancient like evil slime. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's got this so it's got this serious reaction. All the reflections off people's faces while they work on the computers down there, or how they react to all this stuff. It, it's it's absolutely like it's incredible. I mean, it, I don't know if it, I don't know if those are the two best, but I mean, you know, I just I as you're talking, I just had you know you're talking about the mirror scene, and yeah. I just had another uh, another thing come into my head again it's a film that was uh that pioneered amazing cgi and it's one of these films that it's over 20 years old at this point it's like 25 26 years old but the cgi still stands up sure uh but the scene that i'm thinking of had no cgi uh terminator 2 sure t2 is great when yeah. they're switching out the chip in in arnold's head and head? They're looking yeah, through head. the they're looking through the mirror but it's not a mirror. It's they have it's, a, it's it's empty. No, they have a right. They have a, a puppet of Arnold that you're seeing from behind, and real Arnold from, is facing the camera. Oh, yeah, you he's have, on the opposite side. Yeah, yeah. You have Sarah Connor, you know uh, Linda Hamilton, and her twin sister. 
facing each other. So you see the back of her sister's head and the front of her head, you know, uh, and then a stand in for Eddie Furlong and then like him. So it's like all real people. What's supposed to be a mirror, but it's just like an empty hole in the wall and everyone just mirroring the other like that's that's a deleted. That's a deleted scene too, so that's even yeah. crazier. They cut that from the movie. And everything. Like that's so a brilliant, brilliant piece of of uh, special effects work, and everyone just yeah. assumes it's CGI because of all the amazing CGI work that was put into this film. I, I would I would also probably say like uh, Adventures of Baron Munchausen. That's a great flick. Uh, got a lot of special effects. That's a uh, Terry Gilliam flick. Um, it's incredible. There's so much, so many practical effects in there. Um, and the death character in it, because death follows uh, Baron Munchausen around because he has, he's, you know, he's escaping death. Mm-hmm. But like, I had just watched, um, and I, I think Wolfie will agree with me. I just, I just did a rewatch of, of uh, De La Morte, De La More. And without that death character and all the zombies and some of the practical effects they have in there, Replacing death specifically with a CGI character, it just wouldn't feel the same. Okay. I mean, yeah, I'm it's, that. it's just incredible that it's incredible that the characters that you can create, like, say, like from beyond um, all the stuff from beyond with like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Herbert West. I can't remember his the, the actual actor's name right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Jeffrey Combs. Yes. But Jeffrey Combs has a he has a uh, pine- pine- the, they talk a lot. It's a lot about the like pineal gland, like the third eye. He's got a third eye a lot of the movie. He's wearing this huge like two or three inch cap on his head. It's a bald cap with this animatronic worm thing coming out of the front of his head, like puncturing through people's heads. And it's it's all practical and it's it's absolutely incredible. And it's all light mood and a little bit of practical effects, just enough to where it gives you the creeps, just good enough. And you know you can't see it. You, you you're you're growing up your whole life thinking this is like the most incredible thing ever, and it still is. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, and I I would say um, to kind of touch on Ash's what you said earlier, like people trying to interact with things that aren't there. Um, one of the one of the first things that came to my mind when you said that was uh, another film that I don't think they could do CGI for uh, Mary Poppins. You know, when sure. they do the, uh, when Bert's dancing with the penguins. Oh, when they go into, into the, chalk the drawing. whole Jolly Holiday scene. Yes. When it's all the animation with the live action. And what they do is they go through and scene by scene on the actual film, that's what they, they draw the animation mm-hmm. right on there. Yes. So it's a painstaking process, but it's so effective. Um, you know, computerized dancing penguins just wouldn't look It wouldn't look, look right. the same. You know, uh, it, the whole scene just would not look the same. Um, the dogs in the chase scene, the, the view the hello, view the, hello. The, yeah, the, the fox hunting scene. Yes. Um, yeah. It just wouldn't have the same effect. It, it wouldn't be right if they went back and tried to, you know, spruce it up with some CGI because there's an endearing quality about the animation of it. And, you know, being a fan of practical effects, I'm also a fan of the old school animation. Yes. The 
pencil drawings and painting over it or coloring over it. And, you know, uh, with a lot of the high def TVs, you can see some of the pencil lines mm-hmm. on some of these TV shows. And like watching the Sim- like watching early episodes of The Simpsons. Yeah. Like you can definitely see where they left off. <coughs> well, I was going to uh, say to kind of piggyback off of the Mary Poppins thing. Another film that had both live action and animation, but on a grander scale, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, okay, yeah. Because um, I just watched like a mini documentary on that the other day because I was, you know, thinking about this this type of uh, topic. And Charles uh, Fleischer, I believe is his name, who did the voice of Roger Rabbit, Mm -hmm. demanded a rabbit suit. So he could dress up as a rabbit and have something for, like, Bob Hoskins to kind of act with. Yeah. Because they filmed all the scenes, and then they went back and did all of the animation. So he's, yeah. he's doing stuff, and he's reacting to things that not only were they not there, he had no idea what was going to be there. Right. Like, it and was I, crazy. And I think this... Um, the animatronics and whatnot. I, I think that's that's part of it. But I think I, I'm a I'm a sucker. I mean, I'm a sucker for anim, for great animatronics or animatronics in general. I love them. But I think the the art of building sets is dead. Um, I, I I'm a, one of my favorite movies of all time is Dune. Dune, you know, David Lynch built so many this huge warehouse of sets, and this the, you're. There's nothing more sort of gratifying to an, uh, an audience when you're seeing something physically there. Like, it's a huge set that obviously somebody built and spent a lot of time on and a lot of put a lot of heart into and a lot of artistry into. And they build these massive sets and then they bring out animatronic aliens or sort of creatures, or whatever, that they also built. And they also spoke a different language. All this stuff that just feels so passionate and i feel like the arts sort of the art of building a set for the most part i haven't seen anything recently that's really blown my mind but the the, the art of building a set is i feel like it's dead at this point right yeah, now because I mean, a lot of the folks who did that and made that their hallmark you know like you mentioned david lynch you know john carpenter james cameron uh tim burton comes immediately to mind especially with the sure. Batman films like holy shit like you know, a lot of times you have these big sets. I mean, like Game of Thrones has huge sets, and the real, yeah, it's awesome. But there's also a shit ton of CGI behind it. Like you'll have like, a castle, but then you'll have this massive green screen that's you know hundreds of feet high and hundreds of feet wide. Sure. You know, because they have to add you know more depth. It's like okay, well, we need a cliff here, but we're also ooh, something. Oh, my water just fell. Like we need a cliff here. But we also need, thank you, Wolfie, a, uh, you know, we want to keep our actors safe because we don't really want them at the edge of a cliff, just sure. in case. Yeah. yeah. But, no, Wolfie, you got any uh, anything that comes to your mind when it comes to this type of thing? Honestly, I have no, I got, <laughs> no idea what you guys are talking about. Like um, movies that you think would be, you know, are great and perfect with their effects that would be ruined if someone tried to, like, re-release them with updated, uh, you know, CGI. Oh, I don't know. I I could probably think of a bunch, but I, I'm not, uh, I'd have to think about it. I don't want to just no, blurt something out. So no, I didn't know uh, if I, anything like immediately came to mind. 
I think the, the most recent one for me that actually holds holds up really well, and, it, and I feel like it's a masterpiece to me at least, and it went back to the old school ways, but also bombed, was Blade Runner 2049. They made real models for all that stuff. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of CGI, obviously, but there's a ton of model work. If you get that, that Blu-ray disc, there is a fantastic documentary. You can see all those models being built, all those cities, all the cars. It, they go right back to Back to the Future with like cars and hydraulics that come down. And they, it's just right off the other part of the screen. You don't get to see them come down, but it's it's absolutely incredible. You know, uh, Danny Villeneuve, who, who did that, just really just went all out. And uh, most of that stuff is very physical and built. The sets are built. Mm-hmm. And it feels like a real lived-in world. Yeah, I was gonna. I, I, I should have mentioned Ridley Scott, and you know, when I mentioned you know these guys, and you saying Blade Runner kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, I mean, even with like when when Scott did the first Alien, which was basically just a a massive circle. Yeah. That's all that that, that tunnel is, that that core coreway is. But like, but you know, speaking on like things with people like reacting to certain. Uh, physical things that are there. I mean, you know, they brought those characters in there, and John heard, you know, his the alien chestburster comes out. Everybody's reacting to it because Ridley Scott didn't tell anybody that was going to happen that day, right? And again, so everybody's really reacting to it. So, yeah, that's like what I was yeah. saying earlier. Like, you can't do that with CGI. Like, you can't get that genuine horror, horror horrific, or horrified reaction with sure. CGI because you're not seeing anything. I agree. So I think that's a, a, a pretty good place to uh, to to stop for now. Uh, if you're listening and you have some thoughts on movies, maybe we didn't mention, you know, definitely shoot us a, a Facebook message or Twitter. Uh, you know, I'm at Patrick Rejo. Ashes is at Ashes Von at Miss Von Nightmare, and uh, the show's at TD Thursday Pod. You know, shoot us a message. Let us know what you think. If there's anything we missed out. But, oh, uh, I would say uh, Swilling Green. Swilling Green has a ton of matte paintings. Oh, my they're, God, they're yes. Beautiful. They're yes. beautiful. They're beautiful matte paintings. Logan's Run. Yeah, Logan's Run has some beautiful matte paintings. I mean, I mean, I mean, Swilling Green I watched for the first time, I think, uh, two years ago. And like, there's, the matte paintings in that movie are so flawless. They yeah. look beautiful, man. I mean, they, you can't tell. Wizard of Oz, another one. Mm-hmm. Sure, yep. yeah. So, yeah. yeah, we could just keep going on this all day, but I want to talk about some McCready. Because I have some thoughts <laughs> and feelings. So uh, we're going to go ahead. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about R.J. McCready. We're going to talk about his contribution to both the book and the film. And uh, we're going to have a good time with it. So we will be right back.
Hi, I'm Mike Price. I'm a writer on The Simpsons. I co-created F is for Family. And you're listening to Throwdown Thursday Podcast. Hello. This is the Sasquatch, a.k.a. Bigfoot. But you can just call me Frank. And when I'm not stomping around the woods throwing rocks at hunters, I like to listen to the Paranormal Punchers Podcast. That's right, Paranormal Punchers. They talk about all things paranormal, and they're hilarious. Go find them on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and ParanormalPunchers.com. And we're back. So, Jeremy, the first thing I got to ask you, because you are the guest, and uh, I need to know when was the first time you saw this movie or read the book? Uh, when did you really get exposed to uh, McCready? Okay, <clears throat> I'll try to make it quick because I like to like really like go back in my <laughs> my past and talk about all the fun new experiences that I've had. Uh, I was, geez, I was probably 14 and uh, my parents left out of town and we had a babysitter. She was very cool. And she liked to play music and whatnot. She also was like really cool for the, like kids can do, <laughs> they can do whatever they want. That's cool. But long as we're not like criminals or whatever. So I had mowed some lawns and made some money and she took us, took me and my sister to this place that doesn't exist anymore here in Texas, but it was called Ventures, which is basically like a Target or, uh, you know, whatever uh, clothing department you want to go to. But they also have like movies and whatnot. And um, I had already seen a couple of John Carpenter movies because my mom had bought me Big Trouble in Little China. She bought me Escape from New York. So I was already starting to get into John Carpenter. I wanted to see more movies from this guy. So when I was at the store, I saw the, your, you know, the, the original the original, you know, cover of the thing, the blue and the white, the man looking down, the ultimate and alien terror. And I picked it up for like 10 bucks, whatever on VHS tape, brought it back home, watched it blue, you know, blew my mind. You know, and I told my mom about it. My mom's like, Oh, I saw that in the theater with your dad. And, my mom and dad loved the thing, and you know we watched it the other night. To, we watched the other night together, and all that. And um, yeah, you know, Kurt Russell has always been like um, sort of staple in my life. He reminds me a lot of my dad. So like, uh, you know, he kind of has that sort of sensibility. I mean, but seeing Kurt Russell, you know, Big Trouble, Escape, and then now the thing with McCready, and seeing him play McCready in this movie being this sort of man with little to no words, but when he speaks, everybody pays attention. And I kind of, you know, at the time, he still do. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's, that's like my, I'm just watching my dad with a big beard and long hair and killing aliens. So I'm like, yeah, that, that, that speaks a lot to me. That's, that's how he kind of was too. So that's a big, that's a long, I mean, it might be a longer version that you wanted to hear, but, no, 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 <laughs> but no. yeah, 
that, that's when I first got uh, introduced to Bacredi and you know I bought the PC game and played it on PC back in the day and nice. oh, I had the poster on my wall and you know, it was all about Macready and Childs and everybody I, I, I loved the whole damn thing see for me um, I only ju- I only just watched it for the first time a few years ago and it's like Jesus! Oh. I have been missing out. Like I had known about it. Like I had seen a couple of like snippets of it, but I was never like, you know, I went through phases where I was like, oh, I'm going to watch all these like unknown movies or what I thought were unknown movies, just because like the people in my circle hadn't heard of them. I thought they were like super rare, and it's like, oh, I'm watching, you know. Return of the Living Dead and, you know, zombie, like Lucio <laughs> Fulci's zombie. He's zombie, yeah. Like, no yeah. one's ever heard of that. These are so rare. Oh, I'm so eclectic yeah. and weird. But it's like, no, the, these are fucking classics, you dipshit. <laughs> um, so it was only a couple of years ago for me. Uh, Ashes, what about you? When's the first time you saw it? Um, I don't really remember my first viewing of it, but the first viewing that I can remember um, in high school, my senior year, I took a mass media course and it was kind of a cool class. We covered a lot of different things and um, did a lot of I was a morning news anchor. Mm-hmm. So that's oh. my awesome newsworthy voice, you know, and today's morning announcements. Um, (laughs) but we did a film series and one of the films that we watched, uh, was the thing. And primarily the reason why we watched the thing was to discuss the practical effects that were used. So it was cool. We're sitting in the school auditorium because my teacher was like hell bent on us watching some of these classic films. And I mean, we watched Singing in the Rain and Casablanca and um, I, I, a bunch of other movies. I, cool some, teacher. Some of them are, are lost on me. Um, we watched like a, a foreign version of Beauty and the Beast to. Cool it, teacher. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yes, yeah. To a great know, film. be yeah. exposed to subtitles and how to you know appreciate um, film, and he wanted he didn't want us to watch them on the little roll-in cart with the little TV that you had to sign <laughs> yeah. out. You know, he yeah. wanted us to watch them on the biggest screen that he could possibly find. So he rented out the auditorium for every single class that we had while doing this film study. And so I got to watch John Carpenter's The Thing uh, in the school uh, high school auditorium, um, much to the chagrin of some of the other teachers who thought it was very inappropriate. But so if jealous. You think about oh. it. It really isn't that bad. Um, but yeah, it's so... It's and, and, Well, it's bloody and it's gory, but, you know, it's not... It, it, he was... His argument was, you know, they need to watch it so we can dissect it with a professional eye. So, you know, and because Botten did such an excellent job with the practical effects and not to get back into the practical effects talk, um, but he just wanted to show us something that was so well done uh, so we could have a really good conversation. And I think the the script, you know, Carpenter's script is got a lot of levels to it too so i mean it's yeah that that uh, plus the the incredible rob botten effects i mean you got a perfect movie in my opinion so 
Yeah, uh, you won't hear a lot of argument uh, from this side. I know uh, a couple of folks that you know we were hoping to get on the show, um, but were unable to join us. Uh, our good buddies Dynamo Mars and uh, El Goro, huge, huge fans of this film. Well, and that's a question that I had earlier, and I want to pose to both you, Patsy, and you, Jeremy. So I like the thing. I like John Carpenter's work. Um, I, I, I really enjoy it, but it's not, uh, I, I'm not as big of a fan as other people are, especially of the character McCready. So I just want to pose this question. What is the allure of this character? Why is this character so beloved? Jeremy, I'll let you, uh, handle that first. Okay. Um, well, I'm, you know, I, I totally understand where you're coming from, too. I mean, I mean, Carpenter might ha- I mean, for some people, I think Carpenter might have some uh, have a couple of characters like that. I mean, Snake Plissken is not the best guy. He's basically the bad guy. Uh, but you kind of come around to learn to love him because you know that he's he's not about this war. He's not about um, this president. He's not about taking, you know, uh basically taking shit from people that he, he could, he, he's given enough of his time that where he's, where he's at now in his life, where he decides where he does. So I feel like McCready is not too much different than snake Plissken, honestly. Um, but for me, McCready, um, I, I'm a pretty shy dude. Um, I don't say a lot. Um, not even in the open, unless I'm really just like, if someone just prying at me, I come up, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm, sort of, I'll, I'll have to come after them, you know, not come after them, but I have to speak my mind, you know. Um, I'm not a violent person either, and I feel like McCready, for the most part, he's not really a violent guy, he doesn't speak too much, kind of keeps to himself, uh, does his job, and does it to the best of his extent, and then he leaves, he, he's done. Uh, and that's what he does in this movie, but I think the biggest thing is that he takes charge I don't know. If, I don't even know if taking charge is the best word either. But um, all these people are losing their minds, and he's the only rational person. Um, I feel like in the movie, at some point, I mean, we leave a, we lose a couple of people that are rational, but we lose them. But um, I feel like McCready, um, he's the. I don't know. He, he's sort of like the the source of sort of i can't explain it but like maybe like neutrality he's, he's neutral he's like the emotional the- anchor that keeps them from drifting away yeah like like he knows that this thing is going to this thing we don't have like we don't have six months or 12 months or we don't have until you know august or not until summer or whatever we we, we have to act now and there's no reason for any of us to act crazy we should just stay calm and try to figure that figure this out as calmly as possible and that's why I love McCready in this movie because he's this, um, like Patsy said, but he's a very calm person. And, it, and it, it, you see how far it takes him to get a reaction out of him to be like, okay, I've got to really step in. I, after all, you know, all these doctors and these potheads and <laughs> the dude that drinks too much or whatever, he drinks too much. But, like, you know, this guy who you think might not be the best character to follow he ends up being the best character and when you, especially when you see the end you know 
he's just so calm about it. Like it, it's just like he understands how this has to happen, and I think that's why I like him uh, more. He's one of my favorite characters. See, I um, I said I don't know if that's good or not. I no, 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 it is. It's your opinion. Like this is how you are feeling. Like there's no good or bad. Uh, it's very similar to what I said about him being like, and you know, thinking about it now, you know, trying to replay some of the scenes in my head. He never yells. He never raises his voice, really. No. I mean, he's forceful a couple of times, but he's not like Keith David's character, Childs, or anybody else who's, like, yelling and screaming and, you know, smashing up equipment and running around and, like, just losing their mind. He is yeah. the, the, you know, the guy that's tr- the calming influence. Um, and as far as, like, why some people prefer this film over, you know, others or why it speaks to them in a certain way... Um, I know with El Goro, we've had this conversation about a lot of different films where we know Goro, he's a huge dude. So, like, a home invasion film isn't going to do anything for him because he feels like he has enough physical agency to handle someone that comes into his home. Like, he could physically take care of himself. So a movie like The Strangers, not going to bother him so much because he feels like... Or or, uh, uh, Straw Dogs or, you know, something like that. Whoa, Straw Dogs is uh, that, that 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 that's that's different though. When reality comes into play, it's a lot different. But well, yeah, I, I know, I, but, I but watching a film where it's like, okay, I don't feel like that scary. But a supernatural thing sure. is sure. going to give you more. I mean, even if you don't have like the physical agency that El Goro has, you know, you're not this huge, you know, you know. Uh, 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 Guy. Massively muscular beast of a man, uh, you know, these things are still going to frighten you. Well, sure. yeah, because yeah. the thing doesn't discriminate. Right, the thing doesn't care what you are, and all your it just your, wants to become you. Your muscle and and your 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 ability to fight, you know, means nothing. Mm-hmm. No. Because this thing, it's like it doesn't matter. Like you're not going to be. It doesn't matter if you stronger. have a great immune system. This thing is still going to replicate. Right. So are we going to are we going to hit on the remake as well, or is that? Because I watched it recently. I wasn't sure if we're going to hit. On well, it. we watched it too, mainly because we wanted to talk. I wanted to really discuss like the practical effects and like how it kind of leads in. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's fine. That's fine. Um, I mean, I thought the that it was a, a pretty decent film, but when we when we look at McCready, we look at a guy who, you know, one of the the big things that if people are a, are casual fans of this film and they watch it maybe for the first or second time, you know, and they're looking at it and they're like, oh, well, you know, this guy is really not that, uh, you know, that believable. He's a, he's a, uh, you know, he's just sitting there drinking. What kind of scientist is he? Because in the book, sure. he's a meteorologist. Yes, yes. But in the movie, it's like, no, no, no. He can drink all he wants. He's just the helicopter pilot who's literally their only line of life if something were to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he can get drunk and sit in his shack all day because that's all he wants. Like, he's this antisocial, uh, you know, this character who's just antisocial doesn't really care to get involved with everybody else. Like, they have all yeah, these I mean, board com- games and things. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But, like, they have all these board games and all these things. And what does he choose to do? He chooses to drink scotch and play chess by himself against a computer. Sure. You know, they and, have this- and, and No, go I'm ahead. Sorry, go ahead, buddy. No, go ahead. Well, I'm just, just kind of, like, building on to the fact what you're talking about. It's like, you know, 
Copper, Copper, and um, Gary, they both ask him to go, you know, take the helicopter. They're both, they're not helicopter pilots. They're just like, Gary's like, it's, it looks pretty thin up there. I think it can get up there and it'll be better. And McCready's just like, yeah, okay. Like, you know what? I'll do it. And then he does it. And it's like, you know, he just kind of like this dude that kind of just kind of rolls with it. And I, I kind of feel like it's more kind of, I kind of, uh, uh, I can be that kind of person sometimes. I can roll with certain things. I, I, you know, sometimes you have to, you have to pick your battles, and I think that McCready picks his battles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, and could, he's that kind of person. It's like, yeah, I could argue with these guys over whether or not I think it's you know safe, but I'm confident enough in my abilities that I can go up there. See, so like, oh, uh, weather's too bad. Well, might as well just head back now. And now yeah. I'm done. I don't have to fight with these guys. I didn't waste time arguing. And now I can go get drunk in my shack. Exactly. <laughs> like, and I think that's one of the appeals to uh, to the Kurt Russell version of the character is he's a guy. He's a working Joe down there with all these scientists and military guys who are, you know, they're conducting all this research or they're, you know, doing whatever. And he's just drinking and playing chess on the computer. Well, and that's the thing. Like, he's rather unremarkable until he's needed or until he feels that he's needed and Patrick and I were, were talking um, we don't really know much about his backstory in the movie anyways you know we don't know what type of training he has what he did before he was a helicopter pilot so he may have some sort of military training so when the entire place is in crisis he goes into like team leader mode and draws, you know, from all of these leadership skills that he has, and that's why he's able to keep a rather level head. Um, you know, try to stay clear of some of the paranoia that sets in, even though he himself is slightly vulnerable to some of this paranoia, yeah. especially towards yeah. the end. Well, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you something that is somebody he reminds me of, and uh, again, it's it's an '80s type theme. Something that I think um, a character that I think was uh, based off of him is uh, Jim Hopper from Stranger Things. Okay. You know, it's like, what does he like to do? He likes to drink and, drink and smoke, be by yeah. himself. But when the shit hits the fan, there he is. Like, sure. But I want to talk a little bit more about the character that people may not be as familiar with, and that's, of course, from the uh, 1938 novella, Who Goes There, that this film is based on. And now, Jeremy, you and I were texting back and forth earlier about something, uh, and I'm going to get to that in a second, but I want to read the opening introduction to McCready. And... See if you can sense a theme, because this goes through the entire novella. Moving from the smoke-blued background, MacReady was a figure from some forgotten myth, a looming bronze statue that held life and walked. Six feet, four inches he stood as he halted beside the table, and with a characteristic glance upward to assure himself of room under the low ceiling beams, straightened. His rough, clashingly orange, windproof jacket he still had on, Yet on his huge frame, it did not seem misplaced. Even here, four feet beneath the drift wind that droned across the Antarctic waste above the ceiling, the cold of the frozen continent leaked in and gave meaning to the harshness of the man. And he was bronze. 
his great red bronze beard, the heavy hair that matched it, the gnarled, corded hands gripping, relaxing, gripping, and relaxing on the table planks were bronze. Even the deep, se- deep sunken eyes beneath heavy brows were bronze. This shit goes on through the entire fucking story. Anytime yeah. they talk about McCready, all he, the only descriptive word he uses is bronze. It drives me out of my goddamn mind. Is he, is he, is he bronzed? Like, <laughs> Jeremy, tell the folks at home your impression when you were listening to the, the audio book of this. Tell them what you thought. Uh, what's the author's name? I forgot his name again. Uh, Campbell. Uh, uh, um, uh, Campbell Jr. or something like that. Yeah, let me, I'm looking at the text you sent me. Uh, John W. Campbell. Yeah, John W. Campbell sounds like he's talking about like a high school like crush. Yes. Uh, that's that's how he talks about McCready in this, which you know, I mean, that's fine. But like, he really obsesses over McCready. Oh, out, out of all the people, all the characters, and just you know, you don't hear about all of them, but there's 37 men mm-hmm. in this outpost. But McCready is, you know, I think about it like this is a 50s novel or novella. 1938, um, this was published. Oh, 1930, okay, 1938. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the first movie adaptation was 1951, but McCready wasn't uh, in it. Okay, yeah, he was, he's not in it, yeah, the, uh, the thing from another world. Uh, but he, he talks about him obsessively, and it's kind of annoying because there are really interesting things happening in the story. This is the first time I ever heard it. This is, I never, I, you know, I've been watching the thing all my life at this point. And it's the first time I ever heard the actual forty. Would you say forty-page story? Is it a forty-page novella or yeah, whatever it is? It's not that long. It's not very long. It, but there are really, I think there are really interesting things in the book. But once McCready comes around, he obsesses over him so much. You, it kind of takes you out of it. And yeah. I thought about this. You know, the thirties. What is the what is a man's man? What is a woman's man? And apparently McCready is this bronze sort of... Um, Robert Mitchum. Rob, yeah, sure. Robert Mitchum or uh, Savage. What's his name? Um, uh, Doc Savage. Character. Doc Savage character. Doc Savage was... Every comic book I've seen of him, he is very bronze colored. Yeah. Uh, but there's like this stature of a man. The, 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 the ideal of what a man's man is, is McCready... And I'm so glad Carpenter got John Car- got um, <laughs> Kurt Russell, just this shabby dude with a big beard and long hair. Well, and that's the <laughs> thing. Like, um, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but no, that's fine. Both Clint Eastwood and Kevin Klein were in talks f- to play this role. So, and neither one of those fit that that right, role. Either. But I think what they were trying to do, I mean, especially in the in the eighties. Um, you know, your action star was like a guy's guy. Well, I mean, 80, you, you're talking late 70s, early 80s. You're looking at the rise of Sylvester Stallone. Sure. Like but 76, all, but- 78, 82. That's, you know, Rambo 1, Rambo 2, Rocky, the first couple of Rocky films. Yeah. But Universal Universal didn't want Kurt Russell. They wanted the other guys. They wanted Clint Eastwood. They wanted, you know, Calvin, Kevin Klein or whatever. Better but box they- office appeal. Yeah, but Carpenter always wanted Kurt Russell. So he, he fought for Kurt Russell and got Kurt Russell, and I'm glad they did because I don't think that movie would work as well without that without him being 
Agreed. Yeah, like if they were to take, um, like Clint Eastwood, who's a guy who's got this growling, dominant personality, like he would have been great for Childs. Mm-hmm. Like he could have done that, but he couldn't have done the McCready character because. He just has that air about him where he's like, I'm the guy in charge. Everyone looks to me where McCready as uh, um, Kurt Russell as McCready is like, you know, I'm going to take charge. But like, I'm not dominating. Like, I'm not overbearing. Kurt Russell has this quiet confidence that he brings to every single role that he plays, whether his character is overly confident or not. Um, Think of him as her Brooks in Miracle. Yeah. You know, or, um, he was excellent. Um, but I would say even his even his character in Breakdown, where they they kidnap his wife. Yes, yes, yes. Um, he's he's a he's a very it's a very good character he plays there. It's a very like understated character, but he's also a very strong character. He takes a little while to get there, but he gets there. Even executive decision, he's this nerdy sort of like you know. Um, you know, uh, Pentagon sort of character who just wears a white, you know, wears a black black tie and white suit. But once you get him up in the air and things start happening, he starts to roll with it and he starts to work with it. Yeah, you know, I agree with you. Kurt Russell is that sort of. Yeah, I, he's just a guy. But then the but this guy has a little bit more to him than you might expect. There's he has so, that it factor. Like some people yeah. just have that thing about them. Like no pun intended. Um, you know, that thing about them <laughs> that you yeah. just, you can't quite put your finger on it, but they have it. Well, it's like he yeah. plays, he plays, uh, you know, in the 80s, he was in three different Carpenter films and he played three very different characters. I agree. You know, you've got, you know, Escape from New York, you've got The Thing and you've got Big Trouble in Little China. And in none of those, can you imagine anyone else in that role? Because it's not like a, a, an interchangeable like, Okay, uh, let's get Denzel Washington because he. We need someone who's angry and forceful, and like you could get sure. anybody who's angry and forceful to play this role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, with him, I mean, you look at Overboard, you look at Captain Ron, you look at Soldier. He's a different. He's different every time. He's yeah. universal. He's a universal yeah. actor. He's got that like. I'm an everyman. But I'm handsome enough that ladies will like the show, and I'm manly enough that guys are going to like the action. You yeah. know, I can be, I can do comedy, I can be a buddy cop, I can hold a film on my own. Well, and I think, mm-hmm. so even though the thing didn't have, bo- like, wide box office appeal, I think that the f- fact that Kurt Russell was chosen to play McCready, this role... Um, is why the thing is such a phenomenon. Well, I wouldn't, I mean, I agree with that, but I would also say um, the actors surrounding Russell are incredible. They, they make it pop. I mean, Keith David being Childs is a brilliant idea. That man really works off of Kurt Russell so well. And, I mean, everybody, Blair, you know, Blair, uh, Knowles, all those characters, you know, um, I, I remember them all, you know, that, that's, that's what makes that film so great is that you remember all these characters from that movie and, right. um, having, Car- having Car- Carpenter, you know, basically select all these guys and have, and basically fly them out to the middle of nowhere, Antarctica 
in a post that they built uh, from scratch kind of shows you that these guys were willing enough to go out there and do this thing. It really shows that their, their dedication and that they really worked off each other really well. And, um, you know, it's happened from time to time where a movie just comes together with all these people and really makes a great ensemble cast. And we need everybody. We need we need everyone in this movie to make it work. And, you know, Kurt Russell being there is the cherry on top. And Kurt, having Carpenter there is his passion product. I mean, this was his passion movie. This is his, He was so passionate about this and Prince of Darkness. But this movie, you know, it came from the thing from another world is his favorite movie you've ever made. But yeah, so, he wanted to be more true to the novel. Yeah. So, well, I mean, uh, since you brought it up, I do want to, uh, I do want to mention, um, two things real quick. One, you know, Carpenter worked again with Keith David later on in the eighties. They live. Yep. Uh, Again, showing like the different the versatility not only in the actors that he chooses, but the different types of films he creates. Um, mm-hmm. Which is why I think Kurt Russell worked with him so frequently because you know they were on the same type of page. Like, okay, I agreed, agreed. This is the type of film I'm making, and I'm capable of making it. But I need an actor who's capable of filling this role. Bam! Here I go. I've got you. Let's just keep working together over and over again. Um, but you brought up the. Uh, you know the, the the fact that this is his favorite. You know, this, uh, the original version of this film was his favorite movie. But, yeah, and this is a very short uh, novella, but there's a lot that he cut out. Um, and you know what you were saying with the prequel, we see a lot of that um, in the novella. McCready's group has gone and found the ship and dug the thing out of the ice and brought it back. That's yeah, it's already happened. That's what happens in the in the prequel. What they're finding, what they bring back is, you know, this charred remain of the of the guy that got his face like kind of sucked into the thing it's and like they morphed. Burned back. Yeah. Yeah, it's got yeah. two heads. I mean, obviously there's the dog, but they don't know it's the dog. No. But like um like that I think is where the See the prequel really, um, you know, really helps out the narrative of the story. It's, it's like, well, how did we find this thing? What happened? Because in the in the book, Macready accidentally blows up the spaceship, and he's like, "Oh man, you know, think about all the things that you know we could have learned from this, and maybe things that would have altered mankind for the better." you know, in the future and like going forward, like we could have, you know, there could have been something in there that saved mankind from itself because he's got sure. that scientist aspect to himself because he's a meteorologist. But in this one, yeah, he's a helicopter pilot. And that's why Carpenter does this so masterfully. I was telling, I was telling ashes. Um, it reminds me of the scene in um, sphere. Where it's it's Dustin Hoffman and it's Liev Schreiber and Michelle Pfeiffer and um, not Michelle Pfeiffer, Sharon oh. Stone and Sam Jackson and they're standing. Queen Latifah, that yeah. movie. Yeah. Oh yeah, Michael Crichton. Is that a Michael Crichton book? Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay. That's a great. I like that book quite a bit. Yeah. So they're standing in front of the sphere, and you know, Dustin Hoffman says, "Hey, you know, 
look at this reflective surface and everyone's like, oh, yeah, you know, what do you think it's made of? Is it made of this? Is it made of that? And he's like, no, my thing is I'm wondering why it's reflecting everything but us. And he's like, I hate to be the one non-scientist who brings this up. And, yeah. then, you know, I think that borrowed from the thing, the blood test scene where, you know, right when Doc Copper gets his, his arms chomped off and you see the head separate from the body and crawl and grow legs and eyes and crawl around. And, you know, one of the maybe one of the best lines of the film, you got to be fucking kidding me. And they <laughs> blow up the head. And that's when McCready gets this idea like, OK, every part of it is, you know, like a separate entity. Sure, yeah. You know, maybe if we just test the blood. I will say I have one small nitpick about this film because that's who I am. Everyone's so afraid of getting infected with the thing and like having the thing enter their body, but they have no problem all using the same knife to cut themselves without sanitizing it in between. They whip it on their jeans. (laughs) The 80s. (laughs) But... Yeah, just wipe it on their pants. Um, but, just wipe it on their pants. But yeah, like McCready, the non-scientist, non-doctor guy who just wants to drink all day, you know, that touches on what you said, Ash, is like, we don't know about who this guy is. For him to be like, okay, I, I, I observed this doing this, so now I'm going to hypothesize and come up with this conclusion that even on a cellular level, it's going to try and and defend itself and I think that's what we see from, uh, uh, you know, his conversations with Wilford Brimley because he does say, like, bring all the notebooks. I want to see everything he's got. And maybe sure. he, he sees, you know, the whole uh, the, the projections about how fast this thing could spread across the globe. But, yeah, I, I definitely prefer movie McCready over – I mean, there's nothing wrong with the character himself in – the, in the novella, but like it shrieks to a halt every single time McCready's there. It's like, oh, he took the flamethrower in his bronzed hands. It's like, yeah, I got it. You described him as bronze 27 fucking times in the first two <laughs> paragraphs. You don't need to keep reminding me there's only 40 pages here. Maybe he had a word count he had to get to. <laughs> but like, it could have been, it could have been a penny, a, a letter. It could have been one of those things. But yeah. like, you know, it's like, Describe one of the other thirty-seven guys. Uh, I they will, don't. He doesn't. No, <laughs> he doesn't. <laughs> but I will say one of the things that I did like, uh, one of the changes I liked from uh, the book. And if you don't have a chance to to get the book, I highly recommend uh, the YouTube channel Cinefix. C i n e f i x. They have a whole series called "What's the Difference," where they break down the differences between books and movies, and they do who goes there in the thing. Um, and one of the points they bring up is, you know, when they McCready does a blood test um, and it turns out that like 14 or 17 people are the thing. And, you know, as they discover, as they're doing the blood test, like, OK, you're fine. You're fine. Nope, you're a thing. And they will beat this guy to death with their bare hands. And after yeah. a while, they start, like, really enjoying it, and they get this sick, perverse pleasure from from beating this thing to death with their bare hands. And, like, it really goes against the type of character we see from McCready in the Because when he kills... Oh, what the hell's the guy's name? Cooks? 
Well, the cook cook is cook is um uh, what's his name uh, that watches over the dogs. Um, yeah, yeah. Cooks goes Clark, to Clark. 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 Yes. Clark is cook. Clark is the cook in, in the book. Yeah. But the guy he he, uh, he sits there and he's got the the um the scalpel and he goes at McCready. McCready just shoots him in the face. Yeah. And you can see that like McCready takes no pleasure in this. He's like, holy shit! Like, like you can see the wheels spinning in his head. Like, I know I did what I had to do because he was coming at me, and I can't let myself get subdued or injured. Because then we're all fucking dead. But I just killed this have, guy. But, yeah, but then you have, and then you have Childs hitting him up with like, well, Clark was human after all. That makes you a murderer. And he doesn't respond yeah. to that. He just moves on nope. to the next blood test. Because mm-hmm. he have to. Because he knows he's like Jesus. Like fuck. Like if I if I dwell on this, you know. But I think I'm gonna break. And I think part of the thing is, all he wanted to do was get as many people. Uh, in the clear as he could because he knows that this is a one-way ticket. Like, they're going to go fight the thing and they're yeah. not all... And he even says, he goes, we're all going to die. But yeah. we have to stop this thing from... From... Uh, from escaping. Yeah. Getting like, out. It just wants to freeze itself, which is what it wanted to do in the book as well. And he's like, no, we can't let it happen. And in the book, they explain, I love the explanation in the book where how they talk about how like it can get out to the sea and it can it can form itself into maybe a uh, a seal or two seals or yep. an albatross, which is a great. It, it's it it kind of gives you that thought, you know, because the movie doesn't give you that kind of thought that this if this thing got out, what could it possibly do? It could it could it form itself in this anything. organism and then split. And then take off across the ocean and become something else. But the, my, my big problem with the book is that they talk a lot about, like, God. Like, how God would stop this from happening. Like, if there wasn't a God, then they wouldn't be able to tell which which person is the thing. And they and when they find out that this person is the thing, they kill it. And it's like, well, well, there is a God. It's like, I don't know about it. Because I know Carpenter is not about all that. It's like... That's why the thing is such a dark movie, and it's, it's not a very morose. Well, it's a very morose flick where it's got a very dark ending, open ended. You know, like maybe we deserve to freeze out here to death as a society because we're not going anywhere. Yeah. Because that was the time you know where Reagan was president and whatnot. And he makes it, and Carpenter makes that very apparent. And in, in most interviews, when he talks about writing the script for the thing, it's like, well, yeah, great practical effects and whatnot, but like. What it's really about is these sort of like humanity turning against each other and killing each other because they have certain people have different ideals, which makes Carpenter one of the my favorite director of all time is that he's always he, he might have awesome special effects, obviously, but he can get very deep in his writings. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, no, I, I, I but, agree um, with you on that. But I, I thought the book was fine. I, I thought it was. I thought it was pretty good. Um, and but my, my biggest problem, as is yours, is that McCree is too is is too obsessed over. And um, I think Carpenter he finds a way to not obsess over McCready at all. It's more like here's Car- here's McCready here right here. Here's McCready right here. Here's McCready telling you know child to get uh, to check the helicopters, see if it's destroyed. 
Um, you know, he tells Knowles to get a uh, uh, tells Knowles to get a or, or Windows to get a table out of the coffee room. He becomes the thinking man in this camp because I feel like for me with McCready, it's like I don't know if any of you guys ever met a dude that's, that's worked on the oil rig. Have you guys ever met a guy that worked on an oil rig for like six months? No. No. Well, with those guys. Usually, for the most part, my dad worked in an oil rig for six months. He hated it, but he made a lot of money, and all he did was take soil samples. That's all he did. And what I feel like McCready is the guy who gets sent down to out this outpost and is just fair, making a lot of money because he can fly a helicopter. Well, anybody who can be trained in eight hours can take soil samples, too. They can just kick a test tube put it in the water, put it in the sand, they have a test tube. They don't have to test it. Somebody else has to test it. So I feel like McCready is a dude that's just like, he's just rolling with life. Whatever comes about that may make him some money because he has this sort of skill, he'll do it. He's a helicopter pilot. But I find that's what the most realistic about R.J. McCready is that he's a real guy. I mean, most people I know, I mean, geez, I work at a warehouse I, 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 you know, I have some warehouse experience. That's why I work there. Is it my my favorite job? <laughs> Not really, but I know how to do it. So for for me, McCready is like a dude going out to an oil rig working for six months because he paid a lot of money because he knows how to fly a helicopter. That's it. Yeah, it's a valuable skill where they are. They don't have that, and it's a vital. Uh, like we said, you know, it's a vital like. If something goes wrong, like that's how they're getting out of there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how they're going to cover the most ground. You know, you can exactly like okay, we can fly out to the ocean and meet a boat. You can't do that in a snowcat. So no, that's a vital skill. You know, he's going to make a lot of money because it's a specialized skill as well. Exactly, and, and you know, most of the old guys that worked out in the field, uh, they have they have a family coming. You know, they have a you know their their wife might be pregnant or whatever. And they're expecting a child. And, you know, instead of joining the military or the army or whatever, he decides to go out to the oil field for six months or two a year and comes back with a boatload of, because you make a lot of money out there, and comes back with some experience and a lot of money to help out start a family. So I, I can't say the same for McCready. I don't really see McCready raising a family, but I feel like he's that sort of person. Like, he has a skill that a lot of companies may require, and he's out there. And when and um, he's able to take, he's able to stay low and calm and take responsibility and look over a lot. I mean, we, we all do it, you know, in our everyday jobs. You know, if somebody has forgotten to put this here or put that there or forgot the clock out or something like that, you know, you're not going to turn your back and say, hey, man, you forgot to do this. You're going to be like, hey, man, like we work together. I'm going to help you do this. So I'm going to help you remember to do this. So can you do that? So maybe you won't get uh, yelled at or whatever. So I I feel like McCree is kind of that guy. He kind of rolls with it, but is not a selfish bastard and kind of can take control and not in the selfish sense, but more of like, I want things to work out well for all of us. So I'm going to help you when I can and when I see it. That's what McCready is. 
I think that's a very uh, apt description of him. Uh, Ashes, I know you have something you want to... Uh... Yeah, well, it, it's more or less a question to pose to the both of you, and then I have the actual answer. But there are a lot of theories on the ambiguity of the ending of the movie. So in the end, it's Childs and it's McCready. And McCready gives Childs a cocktail, a drink. And there are some theories that... Ah, uh, um, yes. Yeah, yes. so... Uh, and as, as Childs takes a sip of the drink, McCready laughs. Kind of like this devious, devilish type of, of, of laugh. And there's some theories about, you know, what that laugh means. Um, my question to you is, what do you think that laugh means? Because there are theories that, that the alcohol wasn't actually alcohol. It was, it was gasoline. It was a cocktail. Molotov cocktail. And that McCready was laughing because he finally proved that child was the thing. Uh, Jeremy, you want to go first? Or you want me to take this? Um, sure. I mean, wh- whatever, man. It's fine with me. I-, I have a pretty simple answer for it. So, right, well, go ahead. Well, go ahead. Uh, my my answer is basically that they're both human. Um, whatever JB he had left that he gave Childs was legitimate and was JB because I think at that point McCready knew there was no way out. The fire would die soon, and they're both going to die. And at that point, he did not care who survived. And, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I, I, th- I think that he thought that Childs was a legitimate human human being. I still think that Childs is a legitimate human being. Um, and they both die there. They freeze to death. Now, when I originally saw it, I kind of bought into that. Uh, the whole, like, it's a Molotov cocktail. And that's why he's kind of laughing, like, Oh, man, or, you know, I can't believe, you know, like, this is how it ends. Like, it, it was it was weird, um, you know, because he even says, like, I think he's trying to lull him into a false sense of security. He goes, well, you know, if one of us is the thing, there's, you know, neither one of us is in shape to do anything about it. Oh, great line. I <laughs> love that line. Um, <laughs> so good. But I'm also familiar with the Dark Horse comic that takes place after the movie where oh, I never read that well I haven't read it because it's hundreds of dollars per issue but I watched a oh YouTube video about it okay <laughs> um, and yikes you know it's basically like the Norwegians sent out a distress signal or somebody sent out a distress signal the army came in the thing attacks the army um because we never see Nall's T.K. Carter's character. We never see what happens to him. Like, we see what happens to Wilford Brimley. And we see what happens to... Um, um, Gary. Gary yeah, gets Gary. killed pretty good. Yeah, we see what happens to them, but we never see what happens to T.K. Carter's character, who I yeah, only... Yeah, you never, you never see what happens to Nulls. I forget about that every time. I don't know why. So, who I only know from Punky Brewster. But he ends <laughs> he- up... Uh, he gives like a scary look, right? At some point, I mean, besides he gets he just gives grabbed. Like a surprise look. He gets yeah. grabbed, okay. but I'm so I'm pretty sure he gets thingified. But like maybe the thing like <laughs> in his body yeah. like escapes because like that's kind of the the premise of what happens in this comic where both Childs and McCready are human, 
and then they get brought to Argentina because that's the closest landmass because they're not going to survive because the camp is destroyed. The Norwegian camp is destroyed. Uh, they do mention that there's a Russian camp about 50 miles away in the prequel. Yes. Yes, they um, do mention that, no. But they're not in any shape. They don't have any transportation to get there. Like, the helicopter's destroyed. The snowcats are destroyed. They're not going to fucking walk 50 miles, uh, especially when they're all beat up. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. somebody comes and rescues them. They get taken there, and, you know, they're trying to find Childs, and turns out Childs okay, but eventually he gets turned into the thing, and, like, there's all, like... It's cr- it's crazy, like the way they adapt the thing to the comics, where he's like this huge hulking monster that like yells shit at Macready, like and it's like hell bent on revenge against Macready. But um, <laughs> okay, I'm gonna say that um, when I first saw it, I figured it was just like you said, the hopelessness of of them, like. You know, we never really got along, and, you know, we fought this whole time, and now we're sitting here drinking the last of my booze, and this is how I go out. Mm-hmm. So, it feels legitimate. It feels like a legitimate situation. Like, they just know that this is the end, and they're just going to sit here and drink this JB until it's gone, and until they're gone. They're going to get yeah. blackout drunk and then never wake up. So, I mean, even what even what Child says about chasing... Uh, he thought he saw Blair, and he chased him out into the into the uh, you know out, out outside, basically, and got lost. I mean, it's legitimate. I mean, they almost get lost going to uh, McCready's uh, bunker, or not McCready's bunker, but Blair's bunker. So, I mean, that all seemed very legitimate to me, and it never it never seems too far out of the crazy realm. So, you know. That's all I always thought about it. I always look at it as, uh, you know, because I look at this with writing, it's whatever you want it to be. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. I think that's uh, a pretty good place to stop. Um, so we're going to take a quick break. Mm-hmm. We'll come back. We have a really awesome battle for next week. And Ooh. we have a great preview of uh, – we have – a uh, very interesting couple of shows coming up the next couple of weeks. So uh, we'll take a quick break, Excellent. and when we come back, we'll close things up. We'll hear a little bit more from Jeremy, and uh, we'll give you a preview of coming attractions. So we'll be right back. Trick or Treat Radio is a phantasmagorical spin kick straight through the heart of pop culture, navigated by the Deadites. We are the world's greatest electroshock band, we destroy monsters, we drink booze, and we win championship belts. If you're not listening to Trick or Treat Radio, here's a taste of what you've been missing. There's three guarantees in life. What are they? Death, taxes, and Trick or Treat Radio every Friday morning. This is one of the most convoluted movies I've ever seen in my life. I'm fucking trying, man. Hi, hi, hi. Oh, yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, yeah. It's like you took a shit on a pile of shit. But you shit on him right. for liking what he likes. Yeah, well, it's my job. This podcast is now banned in Germany. <laughs> it's me, Giovanni Lombardo Radici. Shut up. I call bullshit. I demand someone to bring me the face of Lindsay Lohan. If I had genitals, I would definitely bang her. Oh, wait. Is she a great big fan person? You just hit the jackpot. This is a weird movie, huh? It had action, it had suspense, it had great characters, it had great acting. I'm going to strangle you with my jockey shorts. I don't like mobster movies. Alright, well here's my take. You're a sick fuck. Thank you. Now shut the fuck up and let me talk. Have you ever seen 2001? The okay. box, right? The box and the monkey. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and trickortreatradio.com. Arrivederci, douchebag. 
Hi, I'm Richie the Whiz Kid from the Best Darn Diddly Review Show, and you're listening to the Throwdown Thursday Podcast. Fueled by tacos, beer, and Bloody Marys, the only show featuring baby Jesus with a nail gun, the pride of PA, and the show with the eye of the tiger, ladies and gentlemen, Punch Farm. Hey, this is Mark from Punch Farm. I'm here with Mark Dose. Hello. I'm here with Illusion. Hello. I'm here with Nikki. Hey. Join us every Monday as we talk about life, tacos, beer, and movies. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and punchfarm.com. Keep on punching! <laughs> Who is that handsome man singing uh, Agent Nicole songs? That's uh, uh, that's that's our good buddy Jeremy singing songs. Uh, yeah, uh, if you guys didn't know, I know we've mentioned it on the show a few times, but uh, yeah, that's uh, one of Jeremy's many talents is his uh, musical ability. And uh, we mentioned earlier that Jeremy, you have a new show. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, your new your new podcast? Oh, it's a movie podcast. Um, we just cover, you know, wacky stuff. Like, um, we haven't recorded a podcast in a while. Um, you know, kind of life gets in the ways. But um, recently, we we talked about uh, we're doing we're doing a two part Peter Jackson episode, uh, two part Peter Jackson episode thing. Uh, we're doing we we talked about Dead Alive and um, the Frighteners, and we're going to be talking about it's Friday. We're going to be talking about Meet the Feebles and Bad Taste. Meet the Feebles so, is one that Wolfie recommended, I see, uh, way, way, way back on Elm Street Kids. So this is oh, yeah. some time ago. Uh, where yeah, can I, pick, I picked up uh, bad, I picked up Meet the Feebles with my dad uh, when, I was four, when I was 15. And my, me and my dad watched Meet the Feebles when I was 15 years old. <laughs> he, he was like, I don't know, man, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, it's, it's So, where can folks find you? Oh, we're on iTunes and Stitcher, and um, I got a new show coming out. Uh, it's coming out this Friday called the Deason and McFarland Delirium, where me and my friend Michael Deason talk about all kinds of sort of life stuff, uh, movies here and there. But we're talking a little bit. Look, we're talking about The Crow. Uh, this first episode because we love the crow. We just did a little. We did a rewatch of the crow, and we kind of just blow our load on the crow. We we love the crow. It's it's a it's an amazing movie, amazing soundtrack, and um, we just talk about how I, we feel like it's, it's underrated. So it's coming out this Friday. We got a group. We'll be adding people to the group Friday once it's released. Nice. And uh, yeah. So. So I. That's uh... it. You know, I, I definitely want to thank you for for joining us today, and I know that uh, you know we're going to have you on again in the future because there's some unresolved shows like we still have yet to cover the Road Warrior, Oof. and Oof. I know I know that's right in your wheelhouse, no pun intended. But, oh yeah, uh, Ashes, we have a, a battle this week. We do have a battle, uh, brand new battle. So do you want to do the thing, or do you want me to do the thing with you, or do you want to retire that and save that just for Agent Nicole? 
I think we're going to retire that. Okay. And say that just for Agent Nicole. We'll come up with something new at a later date. Okay. But, uh, yeah, it's time for a brand new throwdown. That's right. Uh, I named this one. And I, I think, uh, as, as, as you know, if you've ever listened to the show or spoken to me in real life, I am a huge fan of puns and plays on words. So this week, the battle is called Russellmania. I know it's not April, but it's Russellmania. And we are taking Kurt Russell characters from the 80s and matching them up against each other. So this is a one-on-one. Oh, yeah, I knew you'd like that one. Oh, shit. So in uh, in no particular order, we have – actually, no, there is order – uh, in order of uh, their cinematic uh, 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 debuts, we have Snake Plissken from 1981's Escape from New York, R.J. McCready from 1982's The Thing, Jack Burton from 1986's Big Trouble in Little China. Those, uh, by the way, all John Carpenter films, by the way, that we mentioned earlier. <laughs> And last but not least, Lieutenant Gabriel Cash from 1989's Tango and Cash. Oh, yeah. This is going to be a tough one. This is going to be a tough one. That is the roughest fucking battle you guys have ever created for me. Yikes. (laughs) I don't know what to do. We were thinking about that on the way because like, oh, well, who who would be a good matchup? And, And then Ash is like, well, didn't he do a bunch of movies in the 80s? I was like, yeah. She goes, what if we just did all his characters from the 80s? Well, I mean, because I feel like the only person who could match Kurt Russell is Kurt Russell. Yeah. <laughs> like, the only person I- who would be a worthy opponent for Kurt Russell is Kurt Russell. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, that's a, hell of a, good, a hell of a good battle. So that's Russell Too Mania. bad. Too bad you guys could get Captain Ron in there. I love Captain Ron. Well, we might so. do a 90s version. Oh, yeah. Captain Ron is so great. Patrick, there actually is a wrestling show uh, from Pro Wrestling Guerrilla that was called Kurt Russellmania. Oh, I did not know that. No mm-hmm. shit. Yep. Deep cuts right oh, there. My oh, my God. Well, thank you, Wolfie. I was uh, not aware. Not of saying that. you didn't, you know, if you oh, hadn't no, heard no, it, no. then it's still new to you, but. That's, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh,. Pro Wrestling Gorilla, anytime you guys uh, want to jump on, you know, be a guest, we'd love to promote you, <laughs> especially with Kurt WrestleMania. So, uh, so yeah, so uh, I do, uh, I do have. Are we doing themes? Or are we not doing themes? This is what happens when you don't come to rehearse. Listen, we rehearsed like what we were going to be talking <laughs> about like the whole time, but. I'll I'll say we'll 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 skip the themes this week because we have uh, uh, as folks know, uh, Jeremy did all of our all of our themes, mm-hmm. uh, the science facts, Von Nightmare Vineyards, um, but since you're already on the show, you know I don't want people to to get too much of you. I don't want people to think that you know we're uh, <laughs> we're ruining your bronze voice with your bronze hands that you use to strum your bronze guitar. To make our bronze oh. themes, <laughs> yikes! So, <laughs> okay. so I have a uh, a science fact today. Uh, I'll I'll go first with science fact. Love uh, it. If you don't mind, ashes. Unless you want to go first with wine. Go ahead. Okay. So today I am talking about cicadic masking. Cicadic masking is a phenomenon 
in your visual perception where the brain selectively blocks visual processing during eye movements in such a way that neither the motion of the eye and subsequent motion blur of the image nor the gap in visual perception is noticeable to the viewer. However, <coughs> there is a way to actually uh, to test this to, to prove that what you're looking at is actually a say half second behind what you're actually seeing so if you can find a clock with a second hand look away from it and then look back at it you will notice the second hand kind of lingers for an extra amount of time motionless and then starts to move this is so it's it's a, a a survival tactic where i think i would rather have the blurred vision and no uh no delay in my my visual processing then have a delay in my visual processing because if you're being attacked by a predator of some sort you're going to need all the time you can possibly get mm-hmm. i mean Agreed. i'm not really attacked by predators all that often <laughs> so i guess it's okay nor am i usually looking at a uh well, you can look at the if you look at the clock right there on uh, Wolfie's monitor. Kind of look away from a minute and look back, and you'll see the the, the second hand just kind of sit there for a second and then start move. It's pretty interesting, uh, but yeah, it's uh, cicadic. Now I just lost my freaking thing. Cicadic masking. So uh, that's what I have for a science fact today. Ashes, what do you have for wine facts? So I drank a wine. Mm-hmm. And I liked it, so I'm going to tell you about it. Nice. Have you been drinking wine the whole time? No, sadly. Ah, what the fuck? Oh, man. What the fuck is that? I don't know. Sorry, I don't like Patrick hit the bug at his wife. I don't know what it was. It was hovering. I just, I swiped it. I got it away from Apparently, I should have been drinking this entire time. Oh, my God. Sorry, I don't like bugs. I've had a phobia of bugs ever since I was a child. I swatted at it, and it went right at ashes. The important thing is I'm okay. So we'd like to uh, institute a new segment on Throwdown Thursday called Couples Therapy. (laughs) I'm sorry I swatted bugs at you. Oh, my God. I hate you so much. He didn't look venomous. Let's hope. Where is it? I don't know. (laughs) Not near me. I know that. So So anyways, I drank wine. (laughs) I need to drink more wine. Um, It's by Carla Rossi. Uh, Carla Rossi Wines is vinted and bottled by Carla Rossi Vineyards in Modesto, California. So today I'm talking about their brand of Smooth Red. So their Smooth Red is a light-bodied wine that is soft on the palate, slightly sweet with notes of strawberry and raspberry. This luscious wine is sure to delight. It is best served chilled, and it is very light in the sense that it is only 9% alcohol by volume. 
So nice. you could wow. drink. Well, the fantastic thing about this wine and what drew me to it is the fact that it was only two dollars and fifty cents for the bottle. So, yes. Right? Oh, yeah. It's so at the little liquor store right up the street from us. You can drink the entire bottle of wine on your own and be slightly drunk and only have $2.50. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> but yeah, being a light wine, so this it was This is the definitely 86 Hobo's Delight. <laughs> <laughs> Two buck chuck. Um, no, but it's was very sweet. It was sweeter than what I was anticipated because it's not referred to as a sweet red. It's a smooth red. But it was very smooth. And being a light-bodied wine, it made it excellent for um, using as a dessert wine. So it tasted really well on its own. I didn't pair it with anything when I had it. Um, And yeah, I drank the entire bottle with no regrets. (laughs) Wolfie, that's amazing. <laughs> Carla Rossi, what's, smooth red. What's your favorite, what's your favorite wine? What's that? What's, what's your favorite wine, honey? I'm, um, t- I'm asking Joanne what your wine is. Oh, uh, the Cabernet Sauvignon. Cabernet. Hi, oh, Joanna. He, Dad says hi. Hey. <laughs> what's your favorite red wine? Cabernet Sauvignon. Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay. That's that's Joanna's uh, pick for the week too. Okay, (laughs) very nice. Cabs are very nice. Cabs are very smooth, Um, nice medium-bodied red wine, good alcohol content. Very nice for pairing with pasta dishes. Oh yeah, pasta dishes. Lots of pastas. Yeah, a lot of pastas. Cabs are good stuff. Will uh, if uh, if you guys come back up for a rock and shock at some point, or you know, literally any other convention or any other reason, uh, we'll. We'll take you out and have some have some good wine. Oh, sounds delicious! I love wine. Love it. Me too. Oh <laughs> um, yeah, I know. So, uh, so we went over our battle. We did our our, our little segments. So there's a couple things uh, I want to plug really quickly. What are you looking at? I'm I'm looking for the bug. I think uh, that I, you hit at me. I incapacitated him. So uh, this past week. And I think this next week I will be uh, on the two-part episode of the Best Darn Diddly Review Show. Uh, we're covering the episode Homer the Great, Season 6, the, uh, the Stonecutters episode, if you are uh, unfamiliar with the actual main title. Um, I will also be a guest. I'm not sure exactly when it's going to air, but I'm going to be a guest on the Secret Levels podcast with uh, my buddy Toby from the Secret Transmission podcast uh, and Goobs from the Derailers. And uh, we're going to be discussing the uh, live-action Street Fighter movie with uh, Jean-Claude Ooh. Van Damme and Raul Julia. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. That might have aired last week. It might have aired this week. I'm not sure exactly what the schedule is. Um, but speaking of the Derailers, we have... Two shows coming up. The next two shows we do, we are going to have Goobs, Jenny Bean, and Ripkin joining us. And uh, if you live from Canada, eh? That's right. So if you had a chance to check out our appearance on their show, uh, this is going to be more of the same. Except we are going to be discussing two characters that they have chosen. Uh, The first, of course, uh, I don't want to give it away. I'll just tell you, it's a Keanu Reeves character. And it is not Ortiz the dog boy. I love and Ortiz the dog boy, man. Freak's great. <laughs> and the second uh, 
character we are going to be discussing. Again, I don't want to give it away, but uh, he was a mainstay of uh, of Saturday Night Live. He's not worthy. He's not worthy. Uh, it's him and his friend. They they uh, broadcast live from his friend's basement or from his basement, yeah. Aurora, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. They like Excellent. to party on. He's got a respectful Very amount of, uh, of of hair uh, hair nets. Yeah, uh, hair nets and name yeah. tags. That's right. Yeah. Two uh, full length motion pictures. Uh, so I guess the cat's out of the bag. There, uh, obviously, it's uh, Wayne Campbell. We'll be talking about uh, Mike Myers' character. And again, I don't want to ruin the Keanu Reeves character, but it is a Keanu Reeves character. So is it River's Edge? It is not. Oh man! Okay, and right. it is not. It is also not Johnny Utah because we're torturing goobs. So How about my own private Idaho? No, it, it is not. Stop trying okay. to guess because right. if you get it, I'll have to tell you. <laughs> 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 okay, gotcha. but yes, we will have those uh, those folks on for the next couple of uh, episodes, and we're going to be talking about that. And then after that, we have a very special first time guest. Who's never been a guest on the show before? Oh, but I don't want to say who that is. Is it your mom? No, you Whoa. know who it is. Oh. We already have this planned out. That's actually going to be uh, a lot of uh, girl power on these episodes. <gasps> oh, oh yes, and this, yes. Uh, we actually have three young ladies who will be making their uh, guest debuts. Yes. So, oh, and also the return of Spicy Quisted. But, uh, Wolfie, did you want to say something? Oh, okay. Nope. All right. Well, you just you lowered the microphone, so I thought you were about to say something like epic, like I lowered the boom. Yeah, see something like that, <laughs> like some kind of snappy one-liner. That's what you're known for. I am. <laughs> I'm not witty at all. <laughs> hey, at least he didn't hit a bug at you. <laughs> Yet you could have. Done it in my direction. I know. I, I would have tried to like catch it and bring it outside because that's how I am. But well, I just was like, ah, I don't know what this is, and it scary, and because I don't. So know. let me Go put, let wife. me throw it to my wife. I don't know what this is. Hey, <laughs> she is always it saying might, it how might be tough <laughs> and capable she is. It might be poisonous. Who knows? It's only poisonous if you eat it. <laughs> would you suck the poison out? Uh, no, Ooh. because that doesn't do anything. <laughs> that just makes you sick, too. Yeah, but would, don't you want to share that with your wife? I would apply a tourniquet. <laughs> if it was your fault? But if she's sick and I'm sick, who's going to take care of her? <laughs> better off taking care of my damn self. Sit there. <laughs> no, uh, little note, like, peek behind the curtain. There is literally a little bell that she rings when she's not feeling well, and I bring her things. That is a true 100% fact. She has a little blue bell that when she's not feeling well, she will ring the bell. Except for when you're well, in your room with nope. the headphones on. That's because I don't want to hear the bell anymore because Ex- the bell's been going off nonstop. No, 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 no. Can you no, no, fluff no, no. my pillow? There's Can no you bell raise abuse in our house. Can you raise the temperature one degree? Okay, now lower it two degrees. Wait, are you using Celsius? No, I meant Kelvin. <laughs> I need one blanket folded exactly four times. <laughs> Not like that. 
Well, Pasty, we need to talk about some conquest and some Battle of the Apes pretty soon. So. We do. I uh, corny. So I told Ashes that we are, we need to cover Cornelius, not evil corny, but Cornelius from Clan of the Apes. And Agreed. she says, "Well, how many movies do I need to watch?" I said, eight. <laughs> but to be fair, to be fair, she really enjoyed the the new trilogy. Good. Well, we, yeah. watched, we watched. We two. watched two, but you really enjoyed them. I I liked the first one. I thought the second one was all right. The third one's. I'm interested in watching good. the third one. We have them all, and I have every one of the and, movies. And uh, I told you I would give the Except other ones a shot as well. Yes. So. And I won't throw bugs at you. Yet. <laughs> you won't. <laughs> so, well, Jeremy, once again, thank you for joining us. And thank no you problem. for uh, letting us chat ever so briefly with your uh, your lovely wife. And yeah. uh, definitely check out all of Jeremy's shows because Jeremy knows his shit when it comes to movies. Oh, and, nice, uh, we look forward to having you on again. And uh, I think with that being said, we will we'll see, see you, you next, next Thursday. Thursday. <laughs>